Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. A decade ago, on September 17th, 2011, approximately a thousand young people massed in Lower Manhattan at the towering edifices of the Vatican of Capitalism. This movement, known as Occupy Wall Street, called attention to the obscene inequality and devastation of 21st century capitalism on full display in the wake of the fiscal meltdown. Already by that October, in cities around the world, millions had occupied their own symbolic Wall Streets. And although the encampment in Zuccotti Park was relatively short-lived, many have argued that this protest movement changed the language and perhaps the focus of our politics, making the 99% part of the lingua franca. The 10th anniversary of Occupy offers a useful opportunity to assess its long-term impact. Today's podcast benefits from current research on Occupy Wall Street conducted by School of Labor and Urban Studies professors, Penny Lewis, Ruth Milkman, and Stephanie Luce. Joining me today is Stephanie Luce. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks so much. Tell us first uh, just a bit about the research that you and your colleagues, Ruth and Penny, conducted. Yeah, so about 10 10 years ago, right after uh, Occupy Wall Street took off, we found ourselves quickly engaged in Occupy Wall Street. And I was down at the park most days and we were really fascinated with what was going on. And we had the idea that we should actually be trying to document some of that. So we interviewed 25 core uh, core activists, people involved in a, a range of the working groups about their experiences in Occupy. And then that spring after Zuccotti had been evicted, we did a survey of participants in an Occupy Wall Street called uh, March. There was a March on May Day of 2012. And uh, we interviewed over, we surveyed over 800 people at that March to get a sense of some of the participants. So that was the initial research that we did in the past. And then we decided this past summer to go back and contact those core activists again and talk to them about what they've been up to. So we've done interviews with 22 of those 25 people and talk to them about what they see as the lessons of Occupy. And as I understand it, joining us today are four of those activists that you interviewed over this period of time. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Sure. Yeah. So we be speaking with four people. One is Michelle Krenzel. 
she is currently the political director of the New York State Nurses Association. She was a very young uh, participant of Occupy Wall Street. She wasn't brand new to activism, but she was very young at the time, still is young. We also will be speaking to Sandy Nurse. Sandy was also relatively new to politics when Occupy came about, but she is full in politics since then. She's co-founder of the Mayday Space in Brooklyn. And she has, she's also in the middle of running for city council. Uh, she won her primary and she was up for the general election and the presumed victor of that. So she is most likely going to be on the New York City Council. We and will she also- seems to be an interesting example of um, some of the activists that came out of Occupy deciding that getting that involvement in electoral politics was uh, something that they ought to contemplate. Yes, right. So yeah, she's a great example. There's a number of other people around the country who have done that. So she is one of them. We'll also speak with Lisa Fithian, who's a long-term activist. And, you know, you open by saying uh, there was a thousand young people uh, at Zuccotti Park. And there's also some movement veterans as well, people that have been around building movements for, for decades. Lisa is a longtime activist, and she's an author of the book, Shut It Down. And then also Jonathan Smucker, who's co-founder of the group Beyond the Choir and active in Pennsylvania Stands Up. And he is also a, an author and written a lot about Occupy and a book called Hegemony How To about organizing and social movement work overall. Well, I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear what they all have to say. Ten years ago today, a group of activists launched Occupy Wall Street in New York City. The plan was to engage in protests, to raise awareness around growing inequality, and to focus in the heart of American capitalism, in the heart of Wall Street. At the time, the plan was to protest and spend the night and start up an encampment. But very few people, I think, really believed that could happen. People thought that they would be kicked out by the police, but somehow they managed to stay and set up an encampment in Zuccotti Park near Wall Street. Soon, Occupy Wall Street gained attention from around the country and soon around the world. Supporters flooded into Zuccotti Park and soon Occupy other places launched around the world. It was an extraordinary event that captured all of our attention very quickly. I was one of the people that was very skeptical at first. I had been to lots of protests in my life and didn't really think that this would have an impact. But soon I too became hooked and spent much of my time in Zuccotti Park. My colleagues, Ruth Milkman, Penny Lewis, and I decided that we should start to try and document what was happening. And we interviewed 25 people who were active in a variety of the working groups at the time, talking to them about their role in Occupy Wall Street and how they saw it emerging. We also interviewed hundreds of activists who participated in a large Occupy May Day march that happened after people were evicted from Zuccotti Park, but we tried to capture that moment. This past summer, we decided to go back and talk to those people again, those 25 people that we interviewed in the first place, and to see what they've been up to over the past 10 years and to see what they think of the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. So the folks we've invited today represent only a small portion of those who are involved in Occupy Wall Street, but we think that they give a nice representation of the diverse backgrounds of issue work, the the working groups that they were involved in at Occupy and the work that they've gone on to do since. So today we'll be talking to Michelle Krenzel, Lisa Fithian, Jonathan Smucker, and Sandy Nurse about what they see as the legacy of Occupy Wall Street. So thanks all of you for joining us today. 
our program today is focusing on activists who were involved here in New York City, because that's where we're located. Obviously, as I said, this was happening around the world. But for New York City, as most people know, Occupy was evicted on November 17th, just two months after it started. And so some people have looked back and labeled it as a failure, saying it was kicked out of Zuccotti Park. If you look around today, there's still massive inequality. Occupy did not accomplish major structural change. So I'm wondering what you all would say to that. What is the impact of Occupy Wall Street? And I'll go back to Michelle. I mean, I think for one, we can't ignore that we're still talking about it 10 years later. So that's like the most obvious point I feel like I bring up um, is that it's still on people's mind. Um, I also think one thing that I really learned that I think is a part of the impact of Occupy Wall Street is that there's sort of different lanes or different roles that activism can play, whether you're talking about movements or institutions, organizations, et cetera, not everything has to look the same. And I think that's actually a tough lesson that I had to learn coming from the union world. Uh, You know, it's very much an organization, an institution that had structure and hierarchy, et cetera, and not coming, you know, not having that per se, um, or not having it look like that in Occupy, but still seeing a role for something like Occupy Wall Street, a role for movements, and that we, and that a lot of institutions, organizations like unions, like community organizations, need those movements to work the way that they do as well for us to do the work that we do well. The way that people talk about inequality, the way that people talk about consolidation of like corporate power, I, I feel like it was different. I feel like there is a shift coming out of Occupy, whether we think about how people looked at corporations, then you have Occupy, then we're looking at Fight for 15. I mean, yes, we unions and worker organizations have been organizing low-wage workers for a long time, but I think having that large sort of public support of, you know, people should be making a living wage. Like, we can't have these mega corporations at the top that are just siphoning wealth out of entire communities. For people to really see that as a popular idea and be able to talk about that publicly, I do think Occupy made an impact on that. Thank you. And Lisa, as you said, you've been involved in lots of movements, many of which had been going on long before Occupy. So I'm curious what you would say to this question yourself. What is the impact of Occupy? I think one of the things about Occupy, and I may talk a little bit more about that, was the scope and the scale and the speed at which it happened. Because what Occupy did is it woke up a generation, a 99% where we've had movements for decades that have done a lot of the same things, the horizontal organizing, the mic checks, the convergence spaces, holding ground, this People's Park in Berkeley, uh, Minnehaha in Minnesota, I think, Jonathan, you were part. These have all happened before, but Occupy happened very clearly on the economic crash crisis of 2008. the wealth inequality was something that community groups had been organizing on. So there was a, the political moment was right. We had the history, the political moment was right. And then we had a generation that had aspirations and dreams, right, of another world. And all of that kind of came together and made, and I think just occupy off the charts, really, for a movement and all of that it's done and the impact that it's had. Let me go back to Sandy and ask you, what do you see as the major impact of Occupy Wall Street? So I just want to add one thing to what Lisa was saying, because I think that was so good to like contextualize the moment. But also there was this big international global thing happening where people were occupying squares and toppling their governments. I mean, Tahrir Square was such a powerful thing that happened. 
um, what we saw in Algeria and other places where people were across the world under incredibly militarized regimes, dictatorships able to, with nothing but being in space together, bring down a regime or and in some way. There was a, a you know changing of the guard in some way. And the same thing happened in some places in Eastern Europe. So I think all of that kind of happening pretty within the same period of time to me was escalating a lot for people in the imagination that came out of there. And I talk about how the context of the narrative, the 91% versus the 1% plus the money out of politics allowed someone like a Bernie Sanders to rise, someone like an AOC to be able to rise and change the way people who are running someone like myself, who's like, I'm a movement person, I'm a progressive, I'm a leftist to run for office, to not take money from certain places, to do grassroots fundraising. Like that is now a, a, a trademark thing that if you want to call yourself something, it matters where your money comes from. And that being such a, like now it's just a thing, you, you, you know, where you get your money is so important. So I see those as two kind of major things that I always really can point back to as like really gaining momentum from organizing in the park and the scale in which it's happening is pretty significant for a 10-year period. Thank you. And Jonathan, can we ask you what you see as the impact? One is just class, economic class. It was like there was a fog in this country for 30 years where you couldn't say the word class unless it had the word middle in front of it. And suddenly it was framed popularly. You know, and there were a lot of critiques of the 99% from academics of like, oh, the 99%, it, it glosses over all this heterogeneity within the 99%. That's true analytically, but it was a power move. And it, it redefined how people thought of the world and how people imagine themselves in solidarity with other people. So it put class back on the agenda and in a really popular way. I think another important legacy that others have touched on here that, you know, perhaps some people would see as ironic is actually leadership and organization. Because, you know, it was often remarked upon that the movement was like allergic to leadership, allergic to organization. It, it's a lot more complex than that in, in terms of the types of organizations and leadership that was going on in the movement. But a lot of, a lot of people coming out of Occupy learned a lot of lessons of things they loved and things that they wanted to do differently and went to it, got to it. Astra Taylor and I have a piece in New York Magazine today that uh, Evan Weber of the Sunrise Movement has some great quotes in about this kind of reflection that himself and other leaders that formed the Sunrise Movement had on Occupy, like what inspired them and what they wanted to do. So I think that there's a real legacy of building leadership and organizations. And like Sandy said, there is an electoral legacy of Occupy Wall Street as well. Even though the movement at the time was not, you know, you know, kind of eschewed uh, electoral involvement. I think it was Maria Svart who, who said from, from Democratic Socialists of America who said to me when we talked last week that, you know, Occupy opened the door that Bernie Sanders walked through. And I, I think that's really true. I don't know that there would have been a Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign for president if it hadn't been for Occupy Wall Street. And actually, my understanding is some very specific people in Occupy Wall Street who worked on recruiting him. So I, I think that's really, really important. And we just live in a different moment now where that kind of, the, 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 the movement work, the issue work and the electoral work, you know, my whole life there was a chasm. Now it's like, 
people just see it as all kind of cut from the same cloth and all relevant to what we're doing. You mentioned some of the limitations. What was interesting is in going back this summer and interviewing everyone we talked to, or most of the people we talked to 20, 10, 10 years ago, no one had any regrets about being involved in Occupy Wall Street. And for the most part, people thought that it did what it could do at the time, given the political moment and given how quickly it emerged. It, it wasn't like there was a whole you know, array of other choices it could have done as a movement. Still, some of you were, at, even at the time, working to push it in particular directions, dealing with some of the internal critiques and, and limitations of the time. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about those, what you saw as you know, challenges or limits of the movement at the time. Early on, I didn't necessarily see a lot of people who looked like me, didn't seem to reflect the diversity of what I believed um, existed in, in the city. So I think that was part of it, and which also I think drove me to sort of try and figure out where other people of color were, which sort of led to the people of color working group. And I think that was a critique that a lot of us had, right? And I think that also was a critique that I think somebody sort of hinted at around, you know, the 99% being sort of this really big tent, really broad base, which is great. You want to bring a lot of people in, but then sometimes it might sort of gloss over the differences that people face, including, you know, being able to have a solid, like, race and class narrative, right? Like, I think we can do both sometimes. I think the way it happened so fast and, you know, people just being able to attack this movement, it wasn't, you know, so beautifully thought out <laughs> where we could have something that really articulated a race and class analysis that maybe we could do now in hindsight. Do I regret being a part of it because of that? No, I definitely think it was still something that I wanted to participate in. I'm really excited about. And it was also something that we push on internally. Um, we did run into challenges. You know, so I was accused of dividing the movement multiple times because we had a people of color working group, because, you know, people of color wanted to organize together. Some of us were accused of being divisive because of that. But, you know, I, I think that was just bound to happen. But I still think it was, um, uh, it was worth sort of leaning into those challenges. And I think it was one of those lessons that we took out of it that, basically, you know, the lesson, the way I would sort of sum it up is that we can't afford to have, you know, a, a movement or analysis that looks at massive inequality and class disparity and not talk about race, especially if it's going to happen in American society. The learning curve for building a new world is steep. <laughs> and that's what we were trying to do. And so as much as we tried to train and inform, we couldn't hold everything. And so that was one of the limitations is not understanding the need to skill up and build organizers when you're trying to do something at that scale. And so that would inevitably lead to hierarchies with people with more skills, or right? So those became an inside outside. But again, I think just what Michelle said, and I was like, we didn't, as Occupy, we, white men will always go to class when you're trying to talk about race, inevitably. And Occupy did not deal with the cultural oppression of racism and white supremacy, of gender, misogyny, of ability, of class. We really didn't deal with any of that in practice or much in how we chose, or maybe I should say that might then translate into not choosing to intentionally build a culture that would actually be healing and bringing people in, right? We got divided ourselves. I think about the time period. So we're talking about September, October, November, two months. 
when it really gained some traction wasn't until like 700 people got arrested and some women got pepper sprayed in Union Square. And so we're talking about actually like maybe less than a month and a half of trying to do something. And for those of us who were there every day, every day was like a week, like time, like the vortex of space. It was like going into a black hole. So like just everything slowed down and so much, so many things happened in the landscape of a day in a horizontal quote unquote leaderless space, horizontal space. And so I always say, I mean, yeah, there's a thousand critiques, but I really just got to say like, we did all did the best we can not knowing anybody, you know, some of us just not knowing any of each other people meeting each other for the first time in a very tiny square with the one of the largest paramilitary forces in the world, most resource, resourced more than other militaries in other countries. Uh, and I just was reminded in Smucker and Astra's article about the $4.6 million donation from JP Morgan to the NYPD during that time. We had Bloomberg who didn't give a damn about us. And so the infiltration was real. I remember my cousin who was a Bronx assistant district attorney had like come down for one day to just like take five steps into the park, immediately left because he saw several of his colleagues who were undercover in the park. He just was like, I have to get out of here. And I was like, point him out. But he, he, he just left. So it, it was real. We were also a, a place where many people who were homeless in the city, struggling with all sorts of needs that weren't being met by the current, by the city came because there was food, there were blankets, there was tents, there was places to be safe. There were people around. And so the, the grace period that I, the grace that I just give us for trying to like do the best we could with all that and still doing such by being together in space and having the ability to even generate a list of uh, uh, the uh, declaration, just even the ability to generate that declaration, I think was such an, an amazing thing, amazing accomplishment. Thanks, Sandy. Yeah, I have such a poignant memory of the night that the police came to evict Zuccotti Park and being kind of at the, the protest zone and seeing people walk out of the park dressed as so-called activists, but then pulling out badges from underneath their shirt to like show the police that they were okay. It was a, you know, a very painful reality that, that that actually did happen and happens in many left movements. Jonathan, what would you say to this question about the challenges? In many ways, Occupy was the victim of its own success in that it blew up so fast and it involved so, it attracted so many people who were brand new to politics, to involvement in social change work, and and a lot of working class people and poor people and, you know, and like, you know, middle class people who, you know, of, of the rising generation whose economic prospects were precarious, but a lot of folks who were new. And, and that came with its own problems, right? Like people didn't arrive with a fully formulated intersectional, intersectional analysis about race, about gender. There were a lot of folks working really hard to train folks and to do that kind of, you know, it was a school where people were learning those things, but, you know, often, you know, not fast enough. There were huge problems. So that is a great place to wrap it up. I'd love to thank you all for attending our webinar today, and especially thanks to our panelists, Michelle Krenzel, 
Sandy Nurse, Lisa Fithian, and Jonathan Smucker. Uh, it was great to have you, and we hope to see you all again soon. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.